Well, good evening. Allow me to pray for us and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to hear your word preached. And Father, I indeed pray that you would uh, come in the power of your spirit, that you would convict us of sin, that you would convince us of our great Savior and work to uh, make him great in our eyes. Father, that you would show us everything that you are doing throughout all of existence through your church to make us a people for your namesake. We are undeserving of that, Father. I am undeserving of that, and we thank you for your grace to us to be your people. Father, would you, would you bless this time now? Give me grace. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Amen. These are the truths from the Apostles' Creed that we'll be covering tonight. Last week, we reviewed who the Holy Spirit is and what he has done and what he does as revealed in the scriptures. Tonight, we will look at the result of his work, specifically as it applies to God's people. What we'll see is the Holy Spirit is making holy a people for God. That is my sermon's title, and you can see that on the sermon outline, which you can use to follow along if you'd like. Well, it's no surprise that the one who is called the Holy Spirit makes the people he indwells holy. That seems obvious, doesn't it? Though it's not complicated, it is something we struggle to apply. Some of us get uncomfortable when we begin talking about being holy. We might hear the word holy and, and cringe. We might become introspective and self-evaluating, reflecting on our sin and how we don't measure up to the holiness of God. Dear ones, I am praying that tonight we would see the glorious end that God has made us for, to be made holy for him. This is something we must believe in and believe is true about ourselves if we're to see any growth in it. Our creeds help us do this very thing by defining what we do believe in. So let's look at the first phrase in our section of the creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. To say we believe in the church is not entirely correct. Our faith isn't in the church itself. We want to be clear that our faith is in the one whose existence and work necessitates the church. Our faith is in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But because we believe in him, it's necessary for us to believe the church also. She is the one in whom he dwells, through whom he speaks by his word, through whom the sacraments are administered, and whose officers shepherd his people. To say you believe in God, but not the church, is antithetical. You can't be a Christian and not believe the church. I believe the Holy Catholic Church because I have believed in God. You will notice that most public or modern publishments of the creed have an asterisk 
beside the word Catholic. We don't really use this word today. It means universal, which is usually what the asterisk says as well. So the article could read, the holy universal church. I hope that puts everyone at ease that we aren't secretly a Roman Catholic church. Catholic can also be understood as throughout the whole, the throughout the whole church. Well, throughout the whole of what? Throughout all of existence. The universal church is one church throughout the whole of the earth and history. It's not limited only to the visible church we see now. This means that the saints who have gone before us, who have departed to be in the presence of the Lord, are in his church. And we who remain, who are still alive, are also in his church. These are not two distinct factions. They are one. The church is made up of all of God's elect, from every age of the earth and from every nation. This universal church is not restricted to a single nation or gathering of believers. We can see this truth plainly from the scriptures. The gospel did not remain with the Jews. It was always God's intent to save a people from every nation, even as he promised Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We see from Acts that the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The universal church is a people made up of every nation. Though we believe in a church that spans not only all of time, but all peoples, it is yet a church that is entirely one. We are a united universal church. How can such an incomprehensible scope of unity be possible. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He alone, as omnipresent God, can unify a people from every nation. It is a Spirit's power that brings us to Christ as his one holy bride to the glory of the Father. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17, which is on page 977 if you're using a pew Bible, as I am. Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 17 through 22. And he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is in the Spirit that Jesus brings us to the Father. It is by the Spirit that he is building us as a dwelling place for God, as a holy temple in the Lord. That's the church universal. Notice that this temple is being built. It is in the process of being joined together and growing. 
It is founded on the apostles and prophets with Jesus as its cornerstone. But the Spirit is still building it. It's his work to unite us and make us ready for that end, a people made holy for God. Paul continues to show us this in Ephesians chapter 4. So turn there and follow along as I read verses 3 through 6. This is Paul writing to the church. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The universal church is one body, a people united in one spirit. We can only have fellowship with one another because of the unity we have in and by the spirit. Which brings us to the next article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the communion of saints. Communion means to come together relationally as one, to share in a deep and even spiritual manner. It's not superficial, but personal and intimate. If our previous article was about the one church, then this article is about the church in relation to one another. It's a statement of belief in how this body of one operates, and it is reflected beautifully in the early church. Turn back in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Page 911. And they, that's the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The church in Jerusalem, founded by the apostles shortly after Jesus' ascension, was together and had all things in common. They were with one another and sharing what they had as though it was not their own. They even shared their own property, such that it was said that there was not a needy one among them. Why were they doing this? It was a result of and evidence for the communion that they now had with one another, a communion that was based on their one faith in Jesus Christ. Note that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They had communion with each other because they were devoted to the same thing, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to what he said. But what caused this shared spirit among them? Quite simply, because of what happened earlier in the chapter. If you're still in Acts, turn one page back to the beginning of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire began as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit of God was poured into their hearts. They had become born again, not of flesh, but by the promised Holy Spirit. He is how they were able to enact the communion of their one faith in Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they started obeying God's law to love him and their neighbor as themselves. They loved one another by the Spirit and thus preserved their communion in Christ as one body. It is because the early church has been made right with God that they were able to rightly love their neighbors. This is the only way to preserve true communion and fellowship with one another. We love as we have been loved. We accept as we have been accepted. And we forgive as we have been forgiven. All by the power of the one spirit. This is the anointing oil that causes brothers to dwell in peace with one another. It is essential to communion. Thus, the Lord directs us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. How telling then that the forgiveness of sin is the next article in our creed of faith. The forgiveness of sins is a necessary component of the two previous articles that we've just discussed. It's the lifeblood of the church in that it is the entry point for new believers into the church and is what keeps her unity. It is only because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God. The church's holiness was purchased by Christ's spilled blood. It is because we have been forgiven that we can be reconciled to God and that Jesus unites himself to us as the head of the body. We can preserve our communion with one another because we forgive as we've been forgiven. I also want to call our attention to the church's role in the forgiveness of sins by the Holy Spirit. So go in your Bibles to John chapter 20 and verses 21 through 23, just a few pages back from Acts. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, this is disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here we have the Great Commission, according to John's Gospel. Jesus is sending his disciples out, even as he was sent by the Father. He then breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, having just read Acts 2, we know that it won't be until after Jesus' ascension that the disciples will receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus' breathing on them is symbolic of the coming Spirit of God. It's a fitting illustration because spirit can be translated breath. Thus, Jesus is prophetically signifying the coming Holy Spirit. What's important for our purposes is what he says after doing this. Because the receipt of the Spirit is the cause for his following command. Look again in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus is doing two things in these verses. The first is that he is inaugurating the new covenant community 
through the promise of the Holy Spirit, events that are inextricably tied together. The second is that he is investing his authority to forgive sins into the church through the foundation of the apostles' teaching. That is the gospel. We have already discussed the new covenant community and the coming of the Holy Spirit, but what is this business about forgiving sins? How can the disciples forgive sins? Is it not through the safeguarding and proclamation of the gospel? Is that not how you and I came to be forgiven of our sins? Is that not how the church was built? How the gates of hell have been shattered and Satan's kingdom plundered by the faithful and spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel? Forgiveness of sins comes to us through the church's loving devotion to the apostles' teaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how the church was and is built. Scripture shows us this very thing. Do you remember Jesus telling Peter that he would be the rock upon which he would build the church and that he was given the keys to the kingdom? We see Peter then being used as this church bedrock when he preaches to the Jews at the day of Pentecost and furthermore when he brings the gospel to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them as well. The apostles had this authority because they were given the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach it. But as Calvin writes, it wasn't the desire of Christ that the apostles should only absolve sins, but that, and I quote, they should perpetually discharge this office among believers. This apostolic authority has been given to the church. She who stands brick by brick upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets those through whom we have received the word of God. If you are in Christ today, it is in part because of the beautiful feet of Christ's church in carrying the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to your ears. The church's duty to declare the forgiveness of sins to all the earth will complete God's plan for a universal church to dwell in. When the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, then will come the end then the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, which brings us to the resurrection of the body. There's a lot I could say about the resurrection of the body. It's an immensely encouraging truth in this fleeting life, where our bodies decay before our own eyes. You look in the mirror, and there's another gray hair or a wrinkle. And I had a few extra myself after summer Bible camp. <laughs> and the resurrection is an encouraging thought. But sometimes we can treat it as just that, a thought, an idea, a pie in the sky that we can't yet sink our teeth into. But that is far from the truth because the resurrection of the body has happened. Or better said, it's begun. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave. He has, in fact, been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he appeared to hundreds of witnesses before ascending bodily to God's right hand. His disciples touched his body with their own hands. The resurrection of the body is not an intangible fantasy, but a historical reality. We, however, have not yet experienced the resurrection of the body. Yet even for us, there is a present reality that assures us of our inheritance to come. That assurance is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, his 
presence in us when we believe is the down payment of our eternal inheritance in Christ. God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God, and if sons, then heirs. And the work of the Spirit in us to make us holy provides us with tangible evidence to strengthen our assurance. The Spirit makes us new creations, starting when we believe. His sanctifying work in us is a sign to us of his presence. Since he is our guarantee, this bolsters our assurance of the life to come. This is the first resurrection. Not yet of the body, but of our souls. But this can encourage us, dear believer, that the proof is in the pudding, because Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, and by the assurance of the Holy Spirit, we can confidently declare, I believe the resurrection of the body. We await eagerly along with those who have gone before us for the second resurrection, that day when mortal must put on immortality. As Romans 8 says, all of creation groans with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed in their glory. We have the first fruits of the Spirit now, but we groan for that day when we put off this corruptible flesh. Of this immeasurable truth, I want to let the Scripture speak for itself. So turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 50 through 57. That's on page 962. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for the resurrection of the dead. Hallelujah. Of course, once our earthly bodies have been made spiritual ones in the likeness of Jesus' resurrected body, then will come the life everlasting. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why is knowing God eternal life? Well, to put it simply, it's because God is life. He is the I am, having life within himself. And he is the everlasting one to whom alone belongs immortality. He is eternal life. And that we should know him means that we should have him. This is because when Jesus says to know God, he's talking about the kind of personal knowledge we get about someone through a relationship with them. It's not just factual knowledge, but it's intimate and experiential. 
It's knowledge as a result of communion with them. When Jesus says eternal life is to know God, he's saying that eternal life is having a relationship with God. It's having him and experiencing him, being where he is because he is eternal life. So how do we come to this intimate knowledge then? It's by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. At that moment of belief, God shares with us his very being and presence, his spirit. Through the Spirit's regeneration, we become partakers in the divine nature. We are heirs of eternal life because we are heirs of God himself. And the Holy Spirit within us is our guarantee of it. God has begun that work now. Your everlasting life, dear one, began when you believed. Because the Holy Spirit brought the glory of God into the temple of your body as a seal of your redemption. And God will bring this work to completion when the church universal in perfect communion, having been washed clean from her sins, is raised from the dead and presented to God in everlasting life. This is what the Holy Spirit is preparing us for. He is making us ready, making us holy, that we, as the church, may be the dwelling place of God. Life everlasting is to know God. It's to be with him and him with us. It is the presence of his glory tabernacling among us. For the glory of God to dwell in the praise of his people is arguably the whole of, script, of the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 21. Flip to the end of your Bibles. The last book in the Bible. It's on page 1041. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Dearly beloved, this is our end to be a people made holy for God, for him to dwell in our midst, and that we should praise him forever. What a hope is ours. Praise God. But if you're here today and outside the church because you've yet to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, what is your end? Well, we need to only go a few more verses into our chapter to find out. Verse 8 reads, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The end of the wicked 
is eternal destruction in the lake of fire, a place of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. If you're not a part of Christ's church, then you are not being made ready for God's presence. You are being made ready for God's wrath. You are storing up wrath upon yourself for the day of judgment. On that day, you will not be united with one people and God. You will be exiled out of his presence into darkness forever. On that day, you will not have communion with anyone, only the lonely misery of your sins forever. On that day, you on that day, your sins will not be forgiven, but they will finally be judged and punished. On that day, you will be resurrected in body, but not to eternal pleasure, but eternal agony in the lake of fire. On that day, you will not have everlasting life. You will have everlasting death. If you are within the sound of my voice, why would you not repent now and flee from the wrath to come? How terrifying the wrath of the Lamb. Repent, run to Jesus Christ, and he will save you. How beautiful the olive branch of peace that he's extending to you tonight. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, brothers and sisters, how do we apply the things we have discussed tonight? On the surface, the application is simple. The Holy Spirit is making us a people holy for God. So be holy. Be what you are. Don't be worldly. Don't be what you are not. It's simple, but we struggle to obey it, don't we? It's not easy, and we quickly feel the misery of our failure in this command. Why is this? I think we lose sight of a desire to be holy when we lose sight of a desire to be in God's presence. 1 John 3, 2-3 makes this relationship clear. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we're longing for God's presence, then we will keep ourselves pure for that day like fiancés awaiting the day of their wedding. Beloved, God has called us into a covenant relationship with himself. He has begun that now through his son and the gift of his Holy Spirit. And he's going to finish it when he raises us from the dead and life everlasting descends from heaven and dwells among his people. Are we longing for that union with God? Are we keeping ourselves unstained from the world? I think we stop longing for the presence of God when we lose sight of his great love for us. Our love for him in response wanes and is instead replaced with adulterous love for the world. We stop wondering at his grace to us. We stop being as excited to go to church and we start guarding our time from serving her. We stop making time to be with God when we are alone. We cease praying. We cease witnessing, and except for the grace of God to arrest us from our infidelity, we would cease 
believing. Christ, we, or Christ's church, we must repent and be holy. We must be who we are. We are united in one love, one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must fix our gaze on him. Do not abandon your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at the first. We do this by meditating on him who loved us and by the power of his spirit. Don't you remember how he loved you? What you were when he saved you? Do you remember when you first realized that your sins were gone? That the Holy Son of God bore them in his body on the cross, hanging naked with nails through his hands and feet. And think now that this was all so that he could unite you to himself and heap glory on top of glory upon you, so that in the ages to come you might be filled with his very presence and cry out in praise at his grace to you. Beloved, do not love the world. It is passing away. Spend as little time in its pleasures as you need to get by and spend as much time as you can in the things of God which profit your soul. Fight for your relationship with God. Fight to keep your love for him fresh. We do this with our loved ones. We recall their good qualities to stir our affections for them. Do the same with the Lord. We must devote ourselves to meditating on all that is ours in the gospel that we might be united in one holy love for God. Long for union with God, that you should long for the resurrection. Recognize that this union has started now in the Spirit and with the church. For we believe the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, words cannot describe what you have prepared for us who have believed in you for eternal life. I pray that through this word preached tonight, that in some measure you will have worked in our hearts to give us a vision for what you are accomplishing in us through your Holy Spirit, by his power, in the work of Christ Jesus, that you are making us to be your people, a people who have been shown mercy. Father, we thank you for that reality. Give us grace, Father, to repent from our sins. Give us grace to return to our first love, your Holy Son, and to love him through serving your church. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.